If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Why does Antony Ferrara keep ancient, brain-eating beetles? Sax Romer, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you, and we really appreciate your support. We set it up so that for a $5 monthly donation you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. This way you can easily build out your classic audiobook library. And you help give more folks like you the chance to discover the classics in a curated and easily accessible format. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. And if you can't support us financially right now, please rate and review us so more folks can find us. 813. The fourth novel in the Arsène Lupin series is now available. Head on over to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and pick up this fantastic adventure. And if you'd like to save $2 when you get 813, simply enter the coupon code PODCAST. No subscription, no additional purchase necessary. Just enter the word podcast and save two bucks. Thank you for your support. Last week, we went to Oktoberfest. Since 1972, a ski resort in Salt Lake has held an Oktoberfest. It's been rated as one of the best in the West. However, they rate those things. But they have tons of German food, Musicians all day with plenty of umpapa songs and old couples in traditional German costumes dancing in leather pants. Vendors with nutcrackers and little shops set up. And you can also take the tram all the way up to the top of the mountain. It's terrifying, but it's amazingly beautiful. There's lots of beer, too. My grandmother spoke German. And whenever we would visit the branch of my family who settled in the coal mining area of Utah in Carbon County, they would always have food I'd never heard of anywhere else. But I learned to love it. It was a learning curve, but I I did it. So that's the report from Oktoberfest. Now it's time for some Halloween creepiness. And now, The Night of the Necropolis, Part 2 of 8 by Sax Romer. Chapter 5 The Rustling Shadows Cairn stepped out of the lift, crossed the hall, and was about to walk out onto Piccadilly when he stopped, staring hard at a taxicab which had slowed down upon the opposite side whilst the driver awaited a suitable opportunity to pull across. The occupant of the cab was invisible now, but a moment before, Cairn had had a glimpse of her as she glanced out, apparently towards the very doorway in which he stood. Perhaps his imagination was playing him tricks. He stood and waited, until at last the cab drew up within a few yards of him. Myra Duquesne got out. Having paid the cabman, she crossed the pavement and entered the hallway. Cairn stepped forward so that she almost ran into his arms. Mr. Cairn, she cried. What, have you been to see Antony? I have, he replied, and paused at a loss for words. It had suddenly occurred to him that Antony Ferrara and Myra Duquesne had known one another from childhood that the girl probably regarded Ferrara in the light of a brother. 
There are so many things I want to talk to him about, she said. He seems to know everything, and I'm afraid I know very little. Karen noted with dismay the shadows under her eyes, the grey eyes, that he would have wished to see ever full of light and laughter. She was pale, too, or seemed unusually so in her black dress. But the tragic death of her guardian, Sir Michael Ferrara, had been a dreadful blow to this convent-bred girl, who had no other kin in the world. A longing swept into Karen's heart and set it ablaze, a longing to take all her sorrows, all her cares, upon his own broad shoulders, to take her and hold her, shielded from whatever of trouble or menace the future might bring. Have you seen his rooms here? he asked, trying to speak casually, but his soul was up in arms against the bare idea of this girl's entering that perfumed place where abominable and vile things were, and none of them so vile as the man she trusted, whom she counted a brother. Not yet, she answered, with a sort of childish glee momentarily lighting her eyes. Are they very splendid? Very, he answered her grimly. Can't you come in with me for a while? Only just a little while. Then you can come home to lunch, you and Antony. Her eyes sparkled now. Oh, do say yes. Knowing what he did know of the man upstairs, he longed to accompany her. Yet, contradictorily, knowing what he did, he could not face him again, could not submit himself to the test of being civil to Antony Ferrara in the presence of Myra Duquesne. Please do not tempt me, he begged and forced a smile. I shall find myself enrolled amongst the seekers of soup tickets if I completely ignore the claims of my employer upon my time. Oh, what a shame, she cried. Their eyes met, and something, something unspoken but cogent, passed between them, so that for the first time a pretty color tinted the girl's cheeks. She suddenly grew embarrassed. Goodbye, then, she said, holding out her hand. Will you lunch with us tomorrow? Thanks awfully, replied Cairn. Rather, if it's humanly possible, I'll ring you up. He released her hand and stood watching her as she entered the lift. When it ascended, he turned and went out to swell the human tide of Piccadilly. He wondered what his father would think of the girls visiting Ferrara. Would he approve? Decidedly, the situation was a delicate one. The wrong kind of interference, the tactless kind, might merely render it worse. It would be awfully difficult, if not impossible, to explain to Myra. If an open rupture were to be avoided, and he had profound faith in his father's acumen, then Myra must remain in ignorance. But was she to be allowed to continue these visits? Should he have permitted her to enter Ferrara's rooms? He reflected that he had no right to question her movements. But at least he might have accompanied her. Oh, heavens, he muttered. What a horrible tangle. It will drive me mad. There could be no peace for him until he knew her to be safely home again, and his work suffered accordingly. Until, at about midday, he rang up Myra Duquesne on the pretense of accepting her invitation to lunch on the morrow, and heard, with inexpressible relief, her voice replying to him. In the afternoon, he was suddenly called upon to do a big royal matinee, and this necessitated a run to his chambers in order to change from Harris Tweed into Vicuña and Kashmir. The usual stream of lawyers, clerks, and others poured under the archway leading to the court. But in the far corner, shaded by the tall plane tree, where the ascending steps and worn iron railing, the small panes of glass in the solicitor's window on the ground floor, and the general air of Dickens-like aloofness prevailed, one entered a sort of backwater. In the narrow hallway, quiet reigned. A quiet, profound as though motor-buses were not. 
Cairn ran up the stairs to the second landing and began to fumble for his key. Although he knew it to be impossible, he was aware of a queer impression that someone was waiting for him, inside his chambers. The sufficiently palpable fact that such a thing was impossible did not really strike him until he had opened the door and entered. Up to that time, in a sort of subconscious way, he had anticipated finding a visitor there. What an ass I am, he muttered. Then, phew, there's a disgusting smell. He threw open all the windows, and entering his bedroom, also opening both the windows there. The current of air thus established began to disperse the odor, a fusty one, as of something decaying. And by the time that he had changed, it was scarcely perceptible. He had little time to waste in speculation. But when, as he ran out to the door, glancing at his watch, the nauseous odor suddenly rose again to his nostrils, he stopped with his hand on the latch. What the deuce is it? he said loudly. Quite mechanically, he turned and looked back. As one might have anticipated, there was nothing visible to account for the odor. The emotion of fear is a strange and complex one. In this breath of decay, rising to his nostril, Cairn found something fearsome. He opened the door, stepped out onto the landing, and closed the door behind him. At an hour close upon midnight, Dr. Bruce Cairn, who was about to retire, received a wholly unexpected visit from his son. Robert Cairn followed his father into the library and sat down in the big red leathern easy chair. The doctor tilted the lampshade, directing the light upon Robert's face. It proved to be slightly pale, and in the clear eyes was an odd expression, almost a hunted look. What's the trouble, Rob? Have a whiskey and soda. Robert Cairn helped himself quietly. Now take a cigar and tell me what has frightened you. Frightened me? He started, and paused in the act of reaching for a match. Yes, you're right, sir. I am frightened. Not at the moment. You have been. Right again. He lighted his cigar. I want to begin by saying that, well, how can I put it? When I took up newspaper work, we thought it would be better if I lived in chambers. Certainly. Well, at that time, he examined the lighted end of his cigar. There was no reason why I should not live alone, but now... Well? Now I feel, sir, that I have need of more or less constant companionship. Especially I feel that it would be desirable to have a friend handy at, uh, at night time. Dr. Cairn leant forward in his chair. His face was very stern. Hold out your fingers, he said. Extend it, left hand. His son obeyed, smiling slightly. The open hand showed in the lamplight, steady as a carven hand. Nerves quite in order, sir. Dr. Cairn inhaled a deep breath. Tell me, he said. It's a queer tale, his son began. And if I told it to Craig Fenton or Marley round in Harley Street, I know what they would say. But you will understand. It started this afternoon, when the sun was pouring in through the windows. I had to go to my chambers to change, and the rooms were filled with the most disgusting smell. His father started. What kind of smell? he asked. Not incense? No, replied Robert, looking hard at him. I thought you would ask that. It was a smell of something putrid, something rotten, rotten with the rottenness of ages. Did you trace where it came from? I opened all the windows and that seemed to disperse it for a time. Then, just as I was going out, it returned. It seemed to envelop me like a filthy miasma. You know, sir, it's hard to explain just the way I felt about it, but it all amounts to this. I was glad to get outside. Dr. Cairn stood up and began to pace about the room, his hands locked behind him. Tonight, he rapped suddenly, 
what occurred tonight. Tonight, continued his son. I got in about half past nine. I had had such a rush in one way and another that the incident had quite lost its hold on my imagination. I hadn't forgotten it, of course, but I was not thinking of it when I unlocked the door. In fact, I didn't begin to think of it again until, in slippers and dressing gown, I had settled down for a comfortable read. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, to influence my imagination in that way. Their book was an old favourite, Mark Twain's Up the Mississippi, and I sat in the armchair with a large bottle of lager beer at my elbow, and my pipe going strong. Becoming restless in turn, the speaker stood up, and walking to the fireplace, flicked off the long cone of grey ash from his cigar. He leant one elbow upon the mantelpiece, resuming his story. St. Paul's had just chimed the half-hour, half-past ten, when my pipe went out. Before I had time to relight it, came the damnable smell again. At the moment nothing was farther from my mind, and I jumped up with an exclamation of disgust. It seemed to be growing stronger and stronger. I got my pipe alight quickly. Still I could smell it. The aroma of the tobacco did not lessen its beastly pungency in the smallest degree. I tilted the shade of my reading lamp and looked all about. There was nothing unusual to be seen. Both windows were open, and I went to one and thrust my head out, in order to learn if the odour came from outside. It did not. The air outside the window was fresh and clean. Then I remembered that, when I had left my chambers in the afternoon, the smell had been stronger nearer the door than anywhere. I ran out to the door. In the passage I could smell nothing, but... He paused, glancing at his father. Before I had stood there thirty seconds, it was rising all about me like the fumes from a crater. By God, sir! I realized then that it was something following me. Dr. Cairn stood watching him from the shadows beyond the big table as he came forward and finished his whiskey at a gulp. That seemed to work a change in me, he continued rapidly. I recognized there was something behind this disgusting manifestation, something directing it, and I recognized, too, that the next move was up to me. I went back to my room. The odor was not so pronounced, but as I stood by the table, waiting, it increased and increased, until it almost choked me. My nerves were playing tricks, but I kept a fast hold on myself. I set to work, very methodically, and fumigated the place. Within myself I knew that it could do no good, but I felt that I had to put up some kind of opposition. You understand, sir? Quite, replied Dr. Cairn quietly. It was an organized attempt to expel the invader, and though of itself it was useless, the mental attitude dictating it was good. Go on. The clocks had chimed eleven when I gave up, and I felt physically sick. The air by this time was poisonous, literally poisonous. I dropped into the easy chair and began to wonder what the end of it would be. Then, in the shadowy parts of the room, outside the circle of light cast by the lamp, I detected darker patches. For a while I tried to believe that they were imaginary, but when I saw one move along the bookcase, glide down its side, and come across the carpet towards me, I knew that they were not. Before heaven, sir, his voice shook, either I am mad, or tonight my room was filled with things that crawled. They were everywhere, on the floor, on the walls, even on the ceiling above me. Where the light was, I couldn't detect them, but the shadows were alive. Alive with things, the size of my two hands. And in the growing stillness, his voice had become husky. Dr. Cairn stood still, as a man of stone, watching him. In the stillness, very faintly, they rustled. Silence fell. 
a car passed outside in Half Moon Street. Its throb died away. A clock was chiming the half hour after midnight. Dr. Cairn spoke. Anything else? One other thing, sir. I was gripping the chair arms. I felt that I had to grip something to prevent myself from slipping into madness. My left hand. He glanced at it with a sort of repugnance. Something hairy and indescribably loathsome touched it, just brushed against it. But it was too much. I'm ashamed to tell you, sir, I screamed, screamed like any hysterical girl, and for the second time ran. I ran from my own rooms, grabbed a hat and coat, and left my dressing gown on the floor. He turned, leaning both elbows on the mantelpiece, and buried his face in his hands. Have another drink, said Dr. Cairn. You called on Antony Ferrara today, didn't you? How did he receive you? That brings me to something else I wanted to tell you, continued Robert, squirting soda water into his glass. Myra goes there. Where? To his chambers? Yes. Dr. Cairn began to pace the room again. I am not surprised, he admitted. She has always been taught to regard him in the light of a brother. But nevertheless, we must put a stop to it. How did you learn this? Robert Cairn gave him an account of the morning's incidents, describing Ferrara's chambers with a minute exactness, which revealed how deep, how indelible an impression their strangeness had made upon his mind. There is one thing, he concluded, against which I am always coming up. I puzzled over it at Oxford, and others did too. I came against it today. Who is Antony Ferrara? Where did Sir Michael find him? What kind of woman bore such a son? Stop, boy, cried Dr. Cairn. Robert started, looking at his father across the table. You are already in danger, Rob. I won't disguise that fact from you. Myra Duquesne is no relation of Ferrara's. Therefore, since she inherits half of Sir Michael's fortune, a certain course must have suggested itself to Antony. You, patently, are an obstacle. That's bad enough, boy. Let us deal with it before we look for further trouble. He took up a blackened briar from the table and began to load it. Regarding your next move, he continued slowly, there can be no question. You must return to your chambers. What? There can be no question, Rob. A kind of attack has been made upon you, which only you can repel. If you desert your chambers, it will be repeated here. At present it is evidently localized. There are laws governing these things, laws as immutable as any other laws in nature. One of them is this. The powers of darkness, to employ a conventional and significant phrase, cannot triumph over the powers of will. Below the Godhead, will is the supreme force of the universe. Resist. You must resist, or you are lost. What do you mean, sir? I mean, the destruction of mind, and of something more than mind, threatens you. If you retreat, you are lost. Go back to your rooms. Seek your foe. Strive to haul him into the light and crush him. The phenomena at your rooms belong to one of two varieties. At present it seems impossible to classify them more closely. Both are dangerous, though in different ways. I suspect, however, that a purely mental effort will be sufficient to disperse these nauseous shadow things. Probably you will not be troubled again tonight. But whenever the phenomena return, take off your coat to them. You require no better companion than the one you had, Mark Twain. Treat your visitors as one might imagine he would have treated them, as a very poor joke. But whenever it begins again, ring me up. Don't hesitate, whatever the hour. I shall be at the hospital all day, but from seven onward I shall be here, and shall make a point of remaining. 
give me a call when you return now, and if there is no earlier occasion, another in the morning. Then rely upon my active cooperation throughout the following night. Active, sir? I said active, Rob. The next repetition of these manifestations shall be the last. Good night. Remember, you have only to lift the receiver to know that you are not alone in your fight. Robert Cairn took a second cigar, lighted it, finished his whiskey, and squared his shoulders. Good night, sir, he said. I shan't run away a third time. When the door had closed upon his exit, Dr. Cairn resumed his restless pacing up and down the library. He had given Roman counsel, for he had sent his son out to face, alone, a real and dreadful danger. Only thus could he hope to save him, but nevertheless it had been hard. The next fight would be a fight to the finish, for Robert had said, I shan't run away a third time, and he was a man of his word. As Dr. Cairn had declared, the manifestations belonged to one of two varieties. According to the most ancient science in the world, the science by which the Egyptians, and perhaps even earlier peoples, ordered their lives, we share this, our plane of existence, with certain other creatures, often called elementals. Mercifully, these fearsome entities are invisible to our normal sight, just as the finer tones of music are inaudible to our normal powers of hearing. Victims of delirium tremens, opium smokers, and other debauchees artificially open that finer, latent power of vision, and the horrors which surround them are not imaginary, but are elementals, attracted to the victim by his peculiar excesses. The crawling things, then, which reeked abominably, might be elementals so Dr. Cairn reasoned, superimposed upon Robert Cairn's consciousness by a directing malignant intelligence. On the other hand, they might be mere glamours or thought forms thrust upon him by the same wizard mind, emanations from an evil, powerful will. His reflections were interrupted by the ringing of the phone bell. He took up the receiver. Hello? That you, sir? All's clear here now. I'm turning in. Right. Good night, Rob. Ring me in the morning. Good night, sir. Dr. Cairn refilled his charred briar, and taking from a drawer in the writing table a thick manuscript, sat down and began to study the closely written pages. The paper was in the cramped handwriting of the late Sir Michael Ferrara, his traveling companion through many strange adventures and the sun had been flooding the library with dimmed golden light for several hours, and a bustle below stairs acclaiming an awakened household, ere the doctor's studies were interrupted. Again, it was the phone bell. He rose, switched off the reading lamp, and lifted the instrument. That you, Rob? Yes, sir. All's well, thank God. Can I breakfast with you? Certainly, my boy. Dr. Cairn glanced at his watch. I upon my soul, it's seven o'clock. Chapter 6 The Beatles Sixteen hours had elapsed, and London's clocks were booming eleven that night, when the uncanny drama entered upon its final stage. Once more, Dr. Cairn sat alone with Sir Michael's manuscript, but at frequent intervals his glance would stray to the telephone at his elbow. He had given orders to the effect that he was on no account to be disturbed, and that his car should be ready at the door from ten o'clock onward. As the sound of the final strokes was dying away, the expected summons came. Dr. Cairn's jaw squared, and his mouth was very grim when he recognized his son's voice over the wires. Well, boy? They're here, sir. Now, while I'm speaking, I have been fighting, fighting hard, for half an hour. The place smells like a charnel house, and the shapes are taking definite, horrible form. They have eyes. 
His voice sounded harsh. Quite black the eyes are, and they shine like beads. It's gradually wearing me down, although I have myself in hand so far. I mean, I might crack up at any moment. Ha! His voice ceased. Hello, cried Dr. Cairn. Hello, Rob. It's all right, sir, came, all but inaudibly. The things are all around the edge of the light patch. They make a sort of rustling noise. It is a tremendous, conscious effort to keep them at bay. While I was speaking, I somehow lost my grip of the situation. One crawled. It fastened on my hand, a hairy, many-limbed horror. Oh, my God! Another is touching! Rob? Rob, keep your nerve, boy! Do you hear? Yes. Yes. Faintly. Pray, my boy. Pray for strength, and it will come to you. You must hold out for another ten minutes. Ten minutes! Do you understand? Yes. Yes, merciful God. If you can help me, do it, sir. Or... Hold out, boy. In ten minutes you'll have won. Dr. Cairn hung up the receiver, raced from the library, and grabbing a cap from the rack in the hall, ran down the steps and bounded into the waiting car, shouting an address to the man. Piccadilly was gay, with supper-bound theatre crowds, when he leapt out and ran into the hallway which had been the scene of Robert's meeting with Myra Duquesne. Dr. Cairn ran past the lift doors and went up the stairs three steps at a time. He pressed his finger to the bell push beside Antony Ferrara's door and held it there until the door opened and a dusky face appeared in the opening. The visitor thrust his way in, past the white-clad man holding out his arms to detain him. Not at home, Effendi. Dr. Cairn shot out a sinewy hand, grabbed the man, he was a tall fellahin, by the shoulder, and sent him spinning across the mosaic floor of the mandara. The air was heavy with the perfume of ambergris. Wasting no word upon the reeling man, Dr. Cairn stepped to the doorway. He jerked the drapery aside and found himself in a dark corridor. From his son's description of the chambers, he had no difficulty in recognizing the door of the study. He turned the handle. The door proved to be unlocked and entered the darkened room. In the grate, a huge fire glowed redly. The temperature of the place was almost unbearable. On the table, the light from the silver lamp shed a patch of radiance, but the rest of the study was veiled in shadow. A black-robed figure was seated in a high-backed, carved chair. One corner of the cowl-like garment was thrown across the table. Half-rising, the figure turned, and an evil apparition in the glow from the fire, Antony Ferrara faced the intruder. Dr. Cairn walked forward until he stood over the other. Uncover what you have on the table, he said succinctly. Ferrara's strange eyes were uplifted to the speakers with an expression in their depths which, in the Middle Ages, alone would have sent a man to the stake. Dr. Cairn. The husky voice had lost something of its suavity. You heard my order. Your order. Surely, doctor, since I am in my own, uncover what you have on the table, or must I do so for you? Antony Ferrara placed his hand upon the end of the black robe which lay across the table. Be careful, Dr. Cairn, he said evenly. You are taking risks. Dr. Cairn suddenly leapt, seized the shielding hand in a sure grip, and twisted Ferrara's arm behind him. Then, with a second rapid movement, he snatched away the robe. A faint smell, a smell of corruption, of ancient rottenness, arose on the superheated air. A square of faded linen lay on the table, figured with all but indecipherable Egyptian characters, and upon it, in rows which formed a definite geometrical design, were arranged a great number of little black insects. Dr. Cairn released the hand which he held, and Ferrara sat quite still, looking straight before him. D 
Mr. Mesty's beetles. From the skull of a mummy, you filthy, obscene beast. Ferrara spoke, with a calm suddenly regained. Is there anything obscene in the study of beetles? My son saw these things here yesterday, and last night, and again tonight. You cast magnified doubles, glamours, of the horrible creatures into his rooms, by means which you know of, but which I know of too. You sought to bring your thought things down to the material plane. Dr. Cairn, my respect for you is great, but I fear that much study has made you mad. Ferrara reached out his hand towards an ebony box. He was smiling. Don't dare to touch that box! He paused, glancing up. More orders, doctor? Exactly. Dr. Ken grabbed the faded linen, scooping up the beetles within it, and striding across the room threw the whole unsavory bundle into the heart of the fire. A great flame leapt up. There came a series of squeaky explosions, so that almost one might have imagined those age-old insects to have had life. Then the doctor turned again. Ferrara leapt to his feet with a cry that had in it something inhuman, and began rapidly to babble in a tongue that was not European. He was facing Dr. Cairn, a tall, sinister figure, but one hand was groping behind him for the box. Stop that! rapped the doctor imperatively, and for the last time do not dare to touch that box! The flood of strange words was damned. Ferrara stood quivering, but silent. The laws by which such as you were burnt, the wise laws of long ago, are no more, said Dr. Cairn. English law cannot touch you, but God has provided for your kind. Perhaps, whispered Ferrara, you would like also to burn this box, to which you object so strongly. No power on earth would prevail upon me to touch it, but you, you have touched it, and you know the penalty. You raise forces of evil that have lain dormant for ages and dare to wield them. Beware, I know of some whom you have murdered. I cannot know how many you have sent to the madhouse, but I swear that in future your victims shall be few. There is a way to deal with you. He turned and walked to the door. Beware also, dear Dr. Kane, came softly, as you say, I raise forces of evil. Dr. Cairn spun about. In three strides he was standing over Antony Ferrara, fists clenched and his sinewy body tense in every fibre. His face was pale, as was apparent even in that vague light, and his eyes gleamed like steel. You raise other forces, he said, and his voice, though steady, was very low. Evil forces also. Antony Ferrara, invoker of nameless horrors, shrank before him, before the primitive Celtic man whom unwittingly he had invoked. Dr. Cairn was spare and lean, but in perfect physical condition. Now he was strong, with the strength of a just cause. Moreover, he was dangerous, and Ferrara knew it well. I fear, began the latter huskily, Dare to bandy words with me, said Dr. Cairn, with icy coolness. Answer me back but once again, and before God I'll strike you dead. Ferrara sat silent, clutching at the arms of his chair, and not daring to raise his eyes. For ten magnetic seconds they stayed so. Then again Dr. Cairn turned, and this time walked out. The clocks had been chiming the quarter after eleven as he had entered Antony Ferrara's chambers, and some had not finished their chimes when his son, choking, calling wildly upon heaven to aid him, had fallen in the midst of crowding, 
obscene things, and in the instant of his fall had found the room clear of the waving antennae, the beady eyes, and the beetle shapes. The whole horrible phantasmagoria, together with the odor of ancient rottenness, faded like a fevered dream. At the moment that Dr. Cairn had burst in upon the creator of it. Robert Cairn stood up, weakly, trembling, then dropped upon his knees and sobbed out prayers of thankfulness that came from his frightened soul. Chapter 7 Sir Elwyn Grove's Patient When a substantial legacy is divided into two shares, one of which falls to a man, young, dissolute, and clever, and the other to a girl, pretty and inexperienced, there is laughter in the hells. But to the girl's legacy add another item, a strong, stern guardian, and the issue becomes one less easy to predict. In the case at present under consideration, such an arrangement led Dr. Bruce Cairn to pack off Myra Duquesne to a grim Scottish manor in Inverness, upon a visit of indefinite duration. It also led to heart-burnings on the part of Robert Cairn, and to other things about to be noticed. Antony Ferrara, the co-legatee, was not slow to recognize that a damaging stroke had been played. But he knew Dr. Cairn too well to put up any protest. In his capacity of fashionable physician, the doctor frequently met Ferrara in society. For a man at once rich, handsome, and bearing a fine name, is not socially ostracized on the mere suspicion that he is a dangerous blackguard. Thus Antony Ferrara was courted by the smartest women in town, and tolerated by the men. Dr. Cairn would always acknowledge him, and then turn his back upon the dark-eyed adopted son, of his dearest friend. There was that between the two of which the world knew nothing. Had the world known what Dr. Cairn knew respecting Antony Ferrara, then, despite his winning manner, his wealth and his station, every door in London, from those of Mayfair to that of the foulest den in Limehouse, would have been closed to him, closed and barred with horror and loathing. A tremendous secret was locked up within the heart of Dr. Bruce Cairn. Sometimes we seem to be granted a glimpse of the guiding hand that steers men's destinies. Then, as comprehension is about to dawn, we lose again our temporal lucidity of vision. The following incident illustrates this. Sir Elwyn Groves of Harley Street took Dr. Cairn aside at the club one evening. I am passing a patient on to you, Cairn, he said. Lord Lashmore. Ah, replied Cairn thoughtfully. I have never met him. He has only quite recently returned to England. You may have heard, and brought a South American lady, Lashmore, with him. I had heard that, yes. Lord Lashmore is close upon fifty-five, and his wife, a passionate Southern type, is probably less than twenty. They are an odd couple. The lady has been doing some extensive entertaining at the town house. Groves stared hard at Dr. Cairn. Your young friend, Antony Ferrara, is a regular visitor. No doubt, said Cairn. He goes everywhere. I don't know how long his funds will last. I have wondered, too. His chambers are like a scene from the Arabian Nights. How do you know? inquired the other curiously. Have you attended him? Yes, was the reply. His eastern servant phoned for me one night last week, and I found Ferrara lying unconscious in a room like a pasha's harem. He looked simply ghastly, but the man would give me no account of what had caused the attack. He looked to me like sheer nervous exhaustion. He gave me quite an anxious five minutes— Incidentally, the room was blazing hot, with a fire roaring right up the chimney, and it smelt like a Hindu temple. Ah, muttered Cairn. Between his mode of life and his peculiar studies, 
You'll probably crack up. He has a fragile constitution. Who the deuce is he, Cairn? pursued Sir Elwyn. You must know all the circumstances of his adoption. You were with the late Sir Michael in Egypt at the time. The fellow is a mystery to me. He repels in some way. I was glad to get away from his rooms. You were going to tell me something about Lord Lashmore's case, I think, said Cairn. Sir Elwyn Groves screwed up his eyes and readjusted his pince-nez, for the deliberate way in which his companion had changed the conversation was unmistakable. However, Cairn's brusque manners were proverbial, and Sir Elwyn accepted the lead. Yes, yes, I believe I was, he agreed rather lamely. Well, it's very singular. I was called there last Monday, at about two o'clock in the morning. I found the house upside down, and Lady Lashmore, with a dressing gown thrown over her nightdress, engaged in bathing a bad wound in her husband's throat. What? Attempted suicide? My first idea, naturally, but a glance at the wound set me wondering. It was bleeding profusely, and from its location— I was afraid that it might have penetrated the internal jugular. But the external only was wounded. I arrested the flow of blood and made the patient comfortable. Lady Lashmore assisted me coolly and displayed some skill as a nurse. In fact, she had applied a ligature before my arrival. Lord Lashmore remained conscious, quiet. He was shaky, of course. I called again at nine o'clock that morning and found him progressing favourably. When I had dressed the wounds, wounds, there were two, actually, I will tell you in a moment, I asked Lord Lashmore for an explanation. He had given out, for the benefit of the household, that, stumbling out of bed in the dark, he had tripped upon a rug, so that he fell forward almost into the fireplace. There is a rather ornate fender with an elaborate copper scrollwork design, and his account was— that he came down with all his weight upon this, in such a way that part of the copper work pierced his throat. It was possible, just possible, Cairn, but it didn't satisfy me, and I could see that it didn't satisfy Lady Lashmore. However, when we were alone, Lashmore told me the real facts. He had been concealing the truth, largely for his wife's sake, I fancy, he was anxious to spare her the alarm which, knowing the truth, she must have experienced. His story was this, related in confidence, but he wishes that you should know. He was awakened by a sudden, sharp pain in the throat, not very acute, but accompanied by a feeling of pressure. It was gone again, in a moment, and he was surprised to find blood upon his hands when he felt for the cause of the pain— he got out of bed and experienced a great dizziness. The hemorrhage was altogether more severe than he had supposed. Not wishing to arouse his wife, he did not enter his dressing-room, which is situated between his own room and Lady Lashmore's. He staggered as far as the bell-push, and then collapsed. His man found him on the floor, sufficiently near to the fender to lend colour to the story of the accident. Dr. Cairn coughed dryly. "'Do you think it was an attempted suicide after all, then?' he asked. "'No, I don't,' replied Sir Elwyn emphatically. "'I think it was something altogether more difficult to explain. Not attempted murder? Almost impossible. Excepting Chambers, Lord Lashmore's valid, no one could possibly have gained access to that suite of rooms. They number four. There is a small boudoir—' out of which opens Lady Lashmore's bedroom. Between this and Lord Lashmore's apartment is the dressing-room. Lord Lashmore's door was locked, and so was that of the boudoir. These are the only two means of entrance. But you said that Chambers came in and found him. Chambers has a key of Lord Lashmore's door. That is why I said accepting Chambers. But Chambers had been with his present master since Lashmore left Cambridge. It's out of the question. Windows? First floor, no balcony, and overlook Hyde Park. Is there no clue to the mystery? There are three. What are they? First, the nature of the wounds. Second, 
Lord Lashmore's idea that something was in the room at the moment of his awakening. Third, the fact that an identical attempt was made upon him last night. Last night? Good God! With what result? The former wounds, though deep, are very tiny, and had quite healed over. One of them partially reopened, but Lord Lashmore awoke altogether more readily than before any damage had been done. He says that some soft body rolled off the bed. He uttered a loud cry, leapt out, and switched on the electric lights. At the same moment he heard a frightful scream from his wife's room. When I arrived, Lashmore himself summoned me on this occasion, I had a new patient. Lady Lashmore? Exactly. She had fainted from fright at hearing her husband's cry, I assume. There had been a slight hemorrhage from the throat, too. What? Tuberculous? I fear so. Fright would not produce hemorrhage in the case of a healthy subject, would it? Dr. Cairn shook his head. He was obviously perplexed. And Lord Lashmore? he asked. The marks were there again, replied Sir Elwyn, rather lower on the neck. But they were quite superficial. He had awakened in time and had struck out, hitting something. What? Some living thing, apparently covered with long silky hair. It escaped, however. And no, said Dr. Cairn. These wounds, what are they like? They are like the marks of fangs, replied Sir Elwyn. Of two long, sharp fangs. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Night of the Necropolis, Part 2 of 8, by Sax Romer. If you've enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and pick up your copy of 813, the fourth Arzen Lupin adventure. And please rate and review us if you can. It really helps other folks to find our show. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.